we come to a psalm, indeed the second psalm, which I invite you to open up to and follow along as I expound each verse. Where some say this psalm was actually a psalm that was sung at a king's coronation back in the time. Some say even David's um, coronation. This psalm was actually sung. And if you YouTube this psalm, uh, just Psalm 2, put in the search engine, you'll find all these songs that match these words. But you'll notice in your Bibles that there is actually no author mentioned. Just a title um, for some. Mine says, God's son shall reign, and yours might be different. But notice Psalm 3. Psalm 3 says it's a psalm of David. And so scholars have debated whether actually David did write this psalm. Um, usually it's the Jewish commentators that uh, deny the fact that um, it may have been David. Because which we'll see soon, there's a scripture in the New Testament, which of course the Jewish um, brethren do not like. Uh, I wouldn't call them brethren, I'll call them unbelievers, um, in Jesus Christ. Obviously they refute the uh, New Testament. And we'll get into that shortly. But Psalm 2 is what we call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the Messiah. It's actually a prophetic psalm because we know and we will soon see if we don't know that these verses that the Lord, our Father God, says has anointed someone, we know that as being Jesus Christ. He is the anointed. So there are a number of messianic psalms, psalms that are about Jesus Christ, even though this was written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And so I thought we're going through a series which I've entitled, I just had to play on words, try to get as much alliteration as possible, with psalms of the promised one. This is a series that is not new um, in any way, shape, or form, or in ideological terms. But um, we're going to go through some psalms in the, in the coming weeks of the promised one. And I thought it would be fitting as we head into Easter, where we celebrate um, and commemorate and we proclaim the death and resurrection of the promised one. One. He is the Messiah. He is the um, anointed. He is the chosen one. He is the promised one. Whatever word you would like to see in there, we are proclaiming the name of Jesus. And Psalm 2 starts out with a, a question. A question um, which we'll get into shortly. But before I do, I've entitled this message, The Kingdom Established. 
Because we see here in Psalm 2 that it's like um, it's the stages of the kingdom that have been described where it begins with rebellion, of course. It molds into an event where we have someone in power, which in other words brings a judgment. And then, of course, it has to end in good news, which we know the gospel ends in good news. The, the whole stage of God's kingdom ends in good news, only for those who trust in it, of course. And then we come to those last few verses where that describes that moment. Now, the question is, who wrote Psalm 2? And um, I'm going to direct your attention shortly to Acts chapter 4, which we will, we will read together. But before, while you're doing that, I just want to um, just direct your attention to this psalm where I've put it into six parts, okay? I've done an anti-Baptist thing where we, you know, we, we, we live by three. We live by threes, but I, I, I could only do six, sorry. <laughs> six, where we're talking about the first few verses goes into the animosity of the Gentiles. The next verse is the amusement of God, describes that. The next verse followed by that describes the anointed of God. Verse after that describes the anguish of the, the godless. The, first few, the next few verses goes into the annexation of the earth. And finally it ends in the last few verses describing the appeal that is presented to the people to return to God. So we come into the animosity of the Gentiles. And that's described in the first few verses. And there are some questions that I've put up on the, the presentation, which you can see, which I question, I ask after I read this. Verse 1, Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Let the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. I direct you back to that question of who wrote Psalm 2. And now I ask for you to turn to... Acts chapter 4, because I believe it answers a number of questions that are presented before you this morning. Why are the people enraged? Why do they conspire against him? Who is this author talking about? Is he talking about a, a specific instance, a specific event, or is he talking about an overall general um, way of life that the earth has experienced since the creation of men. And so Acts chapter 4, this is after 
um, Peter and uh, John have been released after being arrested. Okay? And so being let go, it says in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Who, now listen, look very carefully at verse 25. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? So that to me says that Peter and John, they thought, or they believed, it was the words of David himself. Verse 26, notice how the, the, the psalm continues to be quoted. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. You see the parallelism there? For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus. So this is where the Jews obviously disagree that this anointed one is talking about Jesus, even though this to me reinforces the fact that it's talking about Jesus. <laughs> now this is the interesting what they say. So they're saying, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, in verse 27, continues, Whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. So here Peter and John are referring to how the Jews, as well as Gentiles, treated Jesus Christ they were actually referring to his crucifixion. Is it fair to say that the psalm is just referring to how they treated Jesus Christ? I don't think so. Because notice how it says, the kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, referring to God the Father, and against his anointed. I think it's safe to say that this is just a general reference of how, throughout the history of the ages, there have been people which is described here as the heathen, that have got together, they've conspired with each other to rebel against the Lord, to, to bring up a fight against the Lord God Almighty. And we know it just looking through the Old Testament, just reading through the Old Testament, there have been king after king that have just put a a foot down and said, we are going to do what we can 
to just eradicate Israel, eradicate God's chosen people, eradicate the name of the Lord. And then we come into when Jesus came down to earth, they tried to eradicate him. They did it physically by crucifying him. Did it stop there? No. We know the church grew, described in the book of Acts. And if you, if you go through your history, of every Roman emperor that was put in place after that time, each one had a purpose to eradicate the name of Christianity. I do some reading on a Roman emperor by the name of Diocletian. Diocletian was a man that was full of himself so much where he even had engraved all the titles that he had, Hercules, Maximus, all, this, all these high and almighty titles that refer to um, earthly um, gods and, and earthly people. And then he declares himself as a man who dispelled the name of Christianity. In his mind, he had successfully eradicated it. And, and how did he go now? He was around about 200 AD, 245 I think AD from the top of my mind that he started ruling to around 310. And I'm asking Diocletian, how do you think he went? 2,000 years later, roughly, we're here and has the name of Christ been dispelled? Has the name of Christ been eradicated? No. That's why I believe the people are imagining a vain thing. They are imagining a vain thing. A vain thing, they're imagining something that is empty, that is futile, that is, it's, it's not never going to happen. And notice how it's just interesting how they're not willing to do it themselves or by themselves. It's, it's like they have to get together to do it. Notice how the, 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 the kings um, or the rulers, they take counsel together. It's not, oh, I can do it myself. I'm going to take God on. No. I can get God if I have 10 people with me. Their thinking is, is vain. And, and, and even after the the, the, the Roman Empire, it, it, down through all the ages, you look through all the history, from, from then till now, there have always been times when they've had, people have got together and had the intention just to eradicate the name of Christ. And we still got them today in the places that we live. Richard Dawkins is a big one. He's on a mission to, to eradicate the name of God. Not just Christ, but God. And we have societies now. We have organizations now that have the name that explicitly rebels Christ and God. Why do they do it? 
And why do they feel enslaved by God's yoke and bands? Notice how verse 3, it, they, they're saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. They feel like they are enslaved by, by God. They're restricted. And if you want to rebel against the name of the Lord, then yes, you are restricted in a way. But notice how in Matthew 11, Jesus says, my yoke, it's actually soft. <laughs> it's actually light. Take it upon yourself. So what's getting in the way? What's really causing this rage, this hatred, this anger towards a God that we know we worship him because he's a loving God. He's a good, good father. What's, what's getting in the way? I think, it's, I think it's pride. And I think that's why it's the number one thing that God hates. Pride, to me, is the, the foundation of all the sin that, um, uh, that, come, that sin comes from. It's, it's pride is... We today have like many definitions of pride, many contexts that it can be used in, but ultimately, pride is just saying, I want to do what I want to do. It's all about me. I don't want anyone else, particularly this God. Even if he has created me, to get in the way. To tell, I don't want him to tell me what to do. And even saying that out loud doesn't make sense, right? And so therefore, they are required to believe that there is no God. They have to believe that. Because then they'll be st stupid, really. What? I know a God is going to judge me, so therefore, I've... Uh, you know, but I'm not, going to, I'm not going to do what he wants me to do. Sounds ridiculous, knowing that it's a God that created the whole universe out of just a few words and in an instant. So therefore, the logical conclusion is not, nah, no God, and let's, let's do what we can to prove that there is no God. They are imagining there is animosity of the Gentiles. And, and as a result, there is an amusement of God. Now, this is the only time in Scripture where we are told that God actually laughs. It's the only time. Notice in the next verse 4. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Now, I'll give you a quick lesson on Hebrew poetry. This is actually called synonymous parallelism in Hebrew poetry. It's where one statement is identical to the other and mentioned straight after. So these are two statements that pretty much mean the same thing. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh, 
the Lord shall have them in derision. So we ask ourselves, is he, is he when he laughs? Because when we laugh for different reasons, don't we? We can laugh because we're, something's funny. <laughs> good one, good one. Don't think God's doing that in this case. Because derision, in this um, context, in this, and when you look at the, the word, is talking about a, a scornful laugh or a, a, a um, mocking. But then, then it's dangerous because then we could think, what, so God's just up there? And just picture the, the, the evil monster thinking that he's winning and he has that laugh, you're ha, 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 You know, I don't think it's that kind of laugh either. I think it's more of a laugh where you think, oh, what in the world are you doing? What, why would you do that? And it's just, it's just laughable of why something like that would happen. For instance, this. I, I, I pictured this. Gave me across some, you know, that, my friend, you have a, tall, uh, uh, a small, tiny sumo versing a huge giant. And you know, looking on the, the child's face, it seems like he, has a, he thinks he has a go. He thinks he has a chance at beating this giant. That, to me, is laughable. Why do people think they have a chance at, at defeating the Lord God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the, the one who knows everything, the one who is all-powerful, the one who is everywhere? Why do they think they have a chance? And we come, as a result, to the anguish of the godless. The anguish of the godless, because... It comes a time when they realize, okay, I can't do it. I didn't have a chance. Never had a chance. What was I thinking? But there will be anguish. And this is found in verse 5. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. And so I've seen this anguish can be seen in three stages throughout history. Three, three main significant stages. And you think of um, after the crucifixion, the unbelieving Israel was vexed by the Roman Empire. And then it, we know in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. This whole city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. They were vexed at that time. And I believe this is a significant stage which illustrates this anguish of the godless. And then... Um, I'm going to refer you to Matthew 24, where unbelieving Israel will again be vexed in the future in a major way. And you might know Matthew 24, as we turn our pages there, or as I do, um, as describing end times, particularly the, the tribulation. And so in verses... 20 to 22, just notice the language here and the description. Um, but pray, um, 
Signs of the end is the, really the title of the chapter, yeah. I'll, I'll do verse 20. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, for then shall be great tribulation such as was not I'm going to add seen since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And then we go into a certain number of, you know, whether we're going to be here or whether we're not going to be here and all that. But notice that. There is going to be tribulation such as never seen before, particularly relating, particularly focused towards unbelieving Israel. And then we have in Matthew 24, the same chapter, down a few more verses in 29, describing the unbelieving Gentiles being vexed by God. Matthew 24, 29 to 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Just imagining that is just brings on anguish. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth Mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So it describes everyone. Gentiles included. And of course, the final judgment will bring the ultimate anguish, and that's the lake of fire, where there will be no more chance. Which brings... A solution, which brings an escape, which brings a, conclu a conclusion that says, all right, here's the answer. It brings an answer. Yes, have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. We just sang, rejoice, the Lord is king. He has set on my holy hill of Zion. So this holy hill of Zion is referring to Jerusalem. And so depending on what your belief is towards the millennial kingdom, whether it's literal or whether it's symbolic, okay, I personally believe this is talking about the time where Christ will reign on this earth for a thousand years and it will be in Zion. It will be in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be restored. And that will be like the place of government where the Lord Jesus Christ will reign. It's God's anointed. God has chosen that His Son, Jesus Christ, be established as the ruler of that age. This age, the ages that have come, that have been, and the ages that are to come. And then, 
I'm thinking, God has a plan. God has a plan. Because, well, the question is, when will this happen? You know, everyone has this question. Even the disciples had this question when even just Jesus left them for the last time here on earth. They had the question. Everyone has the question. Everyone wants to know the answer. Not everyone's happy with the answer. We just don't know. We're not told. And for very good reason. But I'm just thinking, you know, back to that God being amused. Sometimes I, th- I think that, you know, we have these thoughts of God up there, you know, pacing, pacing at the room, thinking, oh my goodness, what am I, what am, what's going to, what am I, what am I to do, what am I going, what's going to happen now that the, uh, that the, um, the internet has come into place, what am I going to do with all those, you know, bad temptations that, and that social media, oh my goodness, Coronavirus. What am I going to do now that this disease is spread through all the nations? What? And I, I feel that people think that way because they themselves think that way. We get worried. We get we get upset when evil is like prevailing in our society. But God's not like that. You say. It's, it's, we know the end. I think it was Billy Graham that said, you know, he's read the back of the book, and guess what? We win. <laughs> we have to keep that in mind. And then with all the promises that it's not going to be easy, and by the way, yeah, we might think as a nation of Australia that things are going down, all right? And yes, they are, but when you think of other countries in the world, and not just the Muslim countries, where, you know, Christianity is banned, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the Western world, we're pretty good at this stage. You know, we're pretty lucky at this stage, actually, with our freedoms that we have. Do some reading on um, what's happening in Canada at this time. And then you might um, be thankful for, oh, wow, okay. I'm pretty glad we can actually come in here and, and, and preach the word of God. I'm actually glad that I actually get a choice on, on who I decide um, I have married. You know? Restrictions are coming, particularly for those who proclaim the name of Christ. Um, the anointed of God. And then it brings the annexation of the earth. It comes down to the earth. It, it, it will affect us. So, here we go. Seven. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here's just some thoughts about that. Now, this day I have begotten thee. All right? Now, I want to give a warning for anyone who reads the New International Version of this passage because they have twisted it in a dangerous way. Instead of saying, 
This day have I begotten thee. It says, this day I have become your father. Which to me implies that because you just became the father, you weren't the father in the first place. Very dangerous. Now begotten here has a very tempting language to believe is the definition because we say such and such begot or begat so, so, so and so, uh, you know, Isaac begat, uh, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob and so on and so on. Talking about Matthew 1, all right, which we think is created. But begotten, the word begotten, and, and this is where we would have arguments with Jehovah's Witnesses, where they believe begotten means created, but actually, when you look at the original word again, it actually doesn't mean created. It just means a declaration or a proclamation of that person being a unique or in a unique position, having a unique title. And he is unique, Jesus Christ. His unique title is the Son of God. The Son of God. He is the one and only begotten Father. Begotten Son, sorry. Um, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his, you know, modern translations will say one and only Son to get rid of that old word called begotten. Since we don't understand it, we won't include it. But he's one and only begotten Who is it speaking of? Some will say David. To me, it's, it's, to me, I think we've gone through enough that says this is talking about Jesus Christ. Um, David in no sense is promised um, the, the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Nowhere is David promised that. And thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This verse, you know, when you, when you read this verse, do you think of just God having a temper or anger or outrage? I challenge you to that thought. Because I think of a rod of iron and I think of Psalm 23. I shall fear no evil. What shall come for me? Thy rod and thy staff. To me, it's a tool used to protect, to get them back into focus on where they should be. Just like a shepherd does to a sheep. The rod of iron, to me, is, it feeds off verse 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Not break as in individually but break the group. Look, to, look again at the start to where who the psalmist is talking about. The kings of the earth themselves and the rulers take counsel together. To me, this could be talking about the rod of iron being used to break them up, get them into little pieces so they can be remade again into the clay that the potter intended 
from the start, thinking that all these small pieces would be good in a way because it breaks it all up and God can make it anew, make it to what it was intended to be from the start, his design. And then we end with the appeal to the return to God. Be wise now, therefore. To me, I see three appeals here of the Holy Spirit. Be wise now, therefore. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. To me, that's an appeal to the mind. Get your mind in the right way. Be wise. Number two, I believe it's an appeal to the will, where we actually have some action. We serve the Lord with fear. We rejoice with trembling. And finally, I believe there's an appeal to the heart. And that's found in the last verse, 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Which is not, to me, a literal kiss the son. To me, it's a, it's a symbol, which they did practice in ancient times, but it's a, a symbol of humility. It's a symbol that, Lord, here I am. Just, I am a piece of clay wanting to be molded into what you would have me to be. And then I love that last sentence in verse 12. Blessed are all they that put their trust in. I'm so glad he like just plainly, explicitly gives an instruction on how you can be a part of his kingdom. And that's the encouragement we have this morning. To go our separate ways. Firstly, having the, 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 the affirmation, having the, the reality of knowing that we have put our trust in him and that we continue to put our trust in him. And that gives us the boldness to go out and declare hey, God's up there. He loves you. He has a plan for you. He has this will and design that he has even um, created before the foundations of the world. And you can be part of it if you just put your trust in him. That's the challenge that is set before us this morning. Let's pray for that help because we know we need boldness to do it. Lord God, we thank you, we give you praise, we give you glory and honour because you've given us a kingdom to be a part of. We thank you for the ease it is to enter, even though it costs so much, Lord. It costs us our pride. And Lord, there are a lot of people around us that aren't willing to give that up. So we pray that you'll help us be your voice. And as the words come out of our mouths, may your spirit do the conviction. And Lord, we believe there are divine appointments that you have for us to meet each of these people to lead them into the everlasting kingdom. And so we just pray and continue to pray that you'll guide us 
in the way that we should go. Bring the people across our paths that you want us to talk to. And in the meantime, being the person that you want us to be by not just proclaiming your love, but demonstrating it to the world around us. We thank you. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.